0: beginning of um, nearly every fairy tale I read to my little girls as they grew up were the words, once upon a time. Remember that? Just those words alone evoke memories of, you know, stories with damsels in distress and some courageous prince coming to a rescue. Well, We've actually seen a fairy tale come true in a very real way. And in the days of of the judges and throughout the history of Israel, not only would they be given the inside piece of, of the puzzle that Ruth uniquely provides in this genealogical record, they would be given an illustration that it's possible to live a godly, virtuous, wholesome life dedicated to obedience to God. Once upon a time, really did, really did happen, and we have seen a damsel in distress rescued by a prince of a man. Even though we're dealing with imperfect people, we are sinners in need of God's grace throughout life. It's obvious that Boaz and Ruth followed after God before they were married, and they will follow after God after they are married. They will Remain together. They'll raise a godly son who will continue on the heritage of following after God all the way down the line until you come to the most famous of Old Testament relatives in the family line of Boaz, their great-grandson, the poet king, David. Let's watch one more time as this wonderful fairy tale unfolds, and we'll reach a conclusion in this session. Look at verse 13 of Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now immediately, uh, you notice how quickly this dramatic tale is wrapping up. In 29 English words in our translation, in two sentences, you have a wedding, a honeymoon, establishing a home, conception, Nine months of expectancy and the birth of a son. Wouldn't it be great if it all went that quickly, right? Except for the good parts. Well, let's just kind of slow it down here and climb back into this scene. And we know from history that the wedding of a couple like Boaz and Ruth would have been a signature event. In fact, the whole village or town would have shown up. The bride and groom would be dressed as much like a king or queen as they could possibly be dressed. That's come down into our own culture where uh, the bride and groom dress in, in the grandest finery they can possibly afford. If the groom was rich, which Boaz was, he would have worn a headpiece or a crown of gold. It was also the custom of the groom to have his garments scented with two expensive fragrances, frankincense and myrrh. Just one more picture, perhaps, of the Messiah, the legal descendant of Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, who as a little boy was presented with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as if to, to speak that he had come to win a bride, For Boaz and Ruth, their marriage was consummated, and a few brief words later, we're told she gives birth to a son. If you look down at verse 17, we're told that the neighbor women gave this boy a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Don't you love that? Never mind, Ruth. it has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, servant. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, it's very unusual I don't know if there's another illustration of this in the Old Testament. very unusual for the women in the village to name the child. We're really given absolutely nothing of an explanation. They may have very well just come up with a name and in their excitement, and Ruth and Boaz agreed with it. Perhaps you have had family members give you a name that you've agreed to use for your children. Perhaps you've had family members suggest a name you would never use for your children. Well, they liked this one. What's interesting here is that Ruth and Boaz now, for the most part, disappear from the story, and the focus of the divine author returns to where it started, Naomi. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, by the way, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. They're saying basically, Naomi, because of Ruth, you are surrounded by care and protection and love. Now there's another close relative, a grandson, who will restore your life and and sustain you in your old age. So in these closing verses, we not only have a wedding ceremony consummated, we have a a, a widowed grandmother invigorated. Can you imagine this reversal for her? You remember how it started? If this is a fairy tale, it started like a nightmare. Naomi is taken by her husband you remember with her two sons to moab it was an act of disobedience to the god of israel most jewish commentaries would believe that he died because of god's discipline and then both of her grown sons one after the other died and she finds herself now traveling back to bethlehem with little hope of even uh, surviving what's more there's no heir to her husband's estate and All that they owned in Bethlehem is going to be given to the highest bidder. she, She has nothing but whatever she and Ruth can scrape together to make a living. That's how it started. You remember she even changed her name. Call me Bitterness. And She believed that God had walked away from her. But now look at her. Verse 16. Look at this. Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, and she became his his nurse. You could render that guardian. Uh, More than likely, uh, the nuance of caregiver would come into play. Suddenly, in the space of a chapter, she's cared for by Boaz, a leading statesman and landowner in Bethlehem. She and Ruth are going to be taken care of royally by this man and Ruth who didn't or perhaps couldn't have children during her earlier marriage to Naomi's son is suddenly expecting and now delivers of all things a male heir to Naomi's husband's estate and no wonder all the women are saying to her that this little boy is proof that your life has been restored that little grandson is going to put a bounce back in your step. He's going to, he's going to wind the clock back. He's going to reinvigorate your, your mind and, and your heart and your, your body. Listen, you better believe it. This is one invigorated grandmother. And she's excited about it so much so that she has taken on the task of helping Ruth and Boaz raise them in a godly fashion. Then don't hold her back. Warren Wearsby commenting on Naomi's joy in this text. In fact, he's writing as a proud grandparent himself wrote, grandchildren are better than the fountain of youth for we get young again when our grandchildren come for a visit. Did I hear an amen? There's an amen. Okay. I'm not a grandparent yet, but I look forward to that clock being wound back and an opportunity to grow young again and enjoy them without being responsible for their actions. <laughs> it's going to be great. Oh, man. Oh, let them do that. Oh, relax. Someone wrote that the children and their grandparents are natural allies. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You ever been to Cracker Barrel? Yeah. Hey, Yeah, you have Tucson son. I have. It's a great place to go. You shop a little bit while you're waiting for your table to to open up. And have you ever seen the grandmother's paddle? It's a long stick, and at the end of it is a little cushion. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Oh, that's true. That's about right. You know, parents are struggling through the daily chores of trying to civilize their little barbarians, and grandma comes along and says, look at my little angels. A different picture comes to your mind. You think they've just been released from the abyss, right? (laughs) Right? One guy asked a mother, if you had it to do all over, would you have children again? She said, yes, but not the same ones. (laughs) Grandparents can't understand that. I mean, they're they're perfect little people, right? Grandparents let grandkids get away with stuff because they're perfect anyway. Frankly, they don't have to replace the torn jeans or the muddy shoes and And they don't seem bothered that the kids ate dessert first or that the only thing they ate was dessert. That's okay. Listen, grandchildren need a dose of that every so often. They need that. Now, that's my opinion. There's no verse on that. Um, (laughs) Grandparents probably have a verse, but trust me, they've taken it out of context. (laughs) It's not in the book of Ruth. Ruth. Other than Naomi was a grandmother, that's our connection here, so let me chase this rabbit a little further. I don't want to miss this. One a medical doctor who authored a number of books on the subject of grandparenting wrote that the bond between a child and a grandparent is the least complicated form of human love. There's probably truth in that. Least complicated. A child who has that is blessed. And maybe some of you can sit there and immediately think of a grandmother or a grandfather. I don't know how many times I've read a testimony from someone in our greenhouse class and the person that impacted them was a grandparent. What a wonderful thing. My uh, my grandmother on my mother's side lived in our hometown. She also served in the servicemen center in Norfolk, and, and uh, she was a widow for many years. So she served in this flagship center, downtown Norfolk, that my parents began in 1958. And, and for us, every Friday night, we went down to the center, stayed until closing, 11 o'clock, got home around midnight. It was a large three-story building. It had everything imaginable in it. It had bunk rooms for the sailors. It had a library for study and a bookstore. It had game rooms with everything imaginable, ping pong and shuffleboard and tons of board games and an assembly room for Bible study. And, and it had that snack counter with uh, cookies and, and a soda fountain. And my grandmother ran that counter and we all had free access all night long. As missionary kids, we looked forward to Friday night, it was the highlight of our week. And just about every Friday night, one of us uh, four boys went home with with her. We called her Granny to spend the night at her home. The sailors all called her Mom Hagen as she served there. We'd spend the night. We'd take turns spending the night at her home. In her little home, was icing on. The cake, and I do mean cake, cake. She had, for one thing, she had a television. Now, we, we did too when we got older, but we were rarely allowed to watch anything but sports and, and Daniel Boone. <laughs> you remember that? Daniel Boone was a man, was a big man, had an eye like an eagle, and as tall as a mountain was he. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> we're way off the book of Ruth right now. Okay, just relax. <laughs> we'll get back to it. Listen, that once-a-month sleepover at Granny's house meant staying in your pajamas and watching cartoons on Saturday morning, which we never did at home, and all the while we were able to eat breakfast cereal from the box of our choice that she had picked out earlier in the week. Your choice, not Bran Flake's. They're the best value for your money. No, not Brand Flakes, but my favorite, Captain Crunch. (laughs) Captain Crunch. Listen, that was around in 1968. Absolutely. The berry edition came out in 1967, the peanut butter edition came out in 1969. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) For over 50 years. Captain Crunch has been ruining kids' health. I know. <laughs> Man, if you can believe there's more to this sordid of tale. She um she would even let us have our own cup of coffee. That's big time. My parents knew it. They wisely figured that once a month would be enough kind of serve, I guess, as a couple hours away from the chores and the homework and the discipline and all the normal, normal stuff. But I'll tell you, as I immediately thought about her when I read this about Naomi, the thing that I remember of the most was not that she bent, you know, rules. And, and by the way, grandparents, be careful with that. There's a fine line between cartoons and Captain Crunch and compromising moral standards that your children are trying to entrust into their children. But what I do remember was that after breakfast was over and it was time to get ready, um, she would come over, sit down, open her Bible, read a few verses, and then she'd preach a little sermon. She would tell me how I needed to live for Christ and was I. And then she would pray the longest prayers (laughs) I have ever heard to this day. She prayed around the world. She prayed for lost people she was witnessing to. She prayed for sailors she'd led to Christ. She prayed for all the missionaries we supported. She prayed for every member of the family. And then she prayed for me. Always with tears. She did nothing but compliment my parents' desire to see me and, and the boys in our home grow up to follow Christ. And I knew she prayed for me until she lost her mental capacities. I was already in the ministry here with Marcia and our boys. And then she went home. So when I see this little phrase of, of Naomi taking Obed into her lap... Let me tell you something. That means something to me. Maybe to you too. A grandparent has the ability to, to teach their grandchildren the gospel and the plan of salvation. That's exactly what Timothy had the advantage of in his home, 2 Timothy 1.5, as his mother and grandmother taught him the Scriptures. A grandparent can be a unique witness of how God is faithful and trustworthy. Joshua 4 is all about that. Those rocks taken from the the middle of that riverbed, they were to be translated in the life and and the telling of the story to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A grandparent can, can be a wise counselor with years of experience and biblical knowledge. A grandparent can be a place of refuge and comfort. A grandparent uniquely understands and can uniquely understand the passing of life and the significance of milestones. They don't have to worry with the details. They can more freely uh, cheer along the way. I think we all need to pay attention to the subject of being like Naomi and Lois. And it's growing potential, by the way. I just began to research a little bit on this subject and learned in my study that that half of the adult population in our country over the age of 45 is a grandparent. 83% of people in our country aged 60 and older are grandparents. We have, right now, 75 million grandparents in our country. In fact, by the year 2000, at least 4 million children were living in their grandparents' home. And it struck me, of all the books you can get in the Christian bookstore on the subject of parenting, where are the books on grandparenting? In a godly fashion, well, here's a great text and context to begin that kind of thought. Parents and grandparents play different but essential roles, don't they? And Naomi, think about it for a moment. This isn't a stretch at all. Na- Naomi could offer something that Ruth could not. As a new convert, Ruth knew nothing of Jewish customs. She knew nothing of the traditions of Israel. And by the time Ruth was learning, Obed was already asking questions. Who do you go to? When Boaz was at work, you go to Naomi to fill in the gaps. What a wonderful asset Naomi provided Ruth and Boaz in raising their son and her grandson to follow after God. So in these closing verses, we have a wedding ceremony consummated, we have a widowed grandmother invigorated, and finally we have a wonderful kinsman redeemer anticipated. The Book of Ruth ends as quickly as it begins. You have the genealogical record of descendants, which is significant because it it places a piece in the puzzle of, of the line of the coming Messiah uniquely offered by Ruth. In verse 18, you have Perez, the father of Hezron. You have Hezron, he's the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab. is the father of Nashon. Nashon father's Salmon. Salmon father's Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed, uh, to him is born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Immediately, you're, you're struck by the fact then that, that Ruth The Moabitess widow, the once impoverished gleaner in the fields of Bethlehem, has become the great-grandmother of King David. It's possible that she lived long enough to see him born. But That's really not the end of the story, is it? Wouldn't you like to know a little bit more about this? I would. I like to find out the ends of to stories and historical nuances and facts. Just a few weeks ago, Paul Harvey passed away. He was known for his news commentary for over 50 years. He, he enthralled people for decades with his, what? The rest of the story, right? I used to listen to him on the radio. I remember years ago hearing him on the radio tell the story of Dick and Allen who worked together repairing watches in the early 1900s, successful. They began to repair watches for their relatives and friends and soon discovered they could make more money by selling them. And so they began to sell them as well as repair them. Before long their business expanded, they ventured into selling other items. They eventually came up with the idea of, of putting things together in a, in a what they called a catalog, mailing it to individuals who could then without ever leaving home, choose an item, send the money in, and they'd be mailed it back. They even opened some stores and began to sell a variety of items. Their businesses flourished. Then the Great Depression hit. Allen sold his share of the business to Dick and headed for Europe to spend his money. Dick slugged through the Depression, kept the business intact, In fact, he'd never even bothered changing the name of their business. Dick eventually died a multi-multi-millionaire. And Alan, over in Europe, now an old man, read the news and decided to return. He walked into a stunned boardroom and announced who he was and asked for a job of importance. Poor old Alan had no idea where or how this thriving corporation was managed. But for old time's sake, they gave him a job opening mail. And introducing him to the to the hundreds of employees as a co-founder, and until he died, he was able to tell the stories, and he was used often in special events to tell the stories of those early years, the early days of Dick Sears and Alan Roebuck, and now you know the rest of the story. I love the rest of the story. I'd like to know more about this eternally significant, divinely inspired story between Boaz and Ruth. I hate to see it end. In fact, look at at chapter 5 and verse 1. And so it came to pass (laughs) that Boaz and Ruth were married in the presence of many witnesses. The wedding guests came from all around Judea to add their blessings to the union and future home of Boaz and Ruth. Verse (laughs) 2, the morning after all the guests had departed, Boaz awakened while it was still early. He searched throughout the house and could not find Ruth anywhere. He began to search diligently for her outside, and upon entering his fields, he saw his bride gleaning in the fields. Once again, she was dressed in rough clothing, and her sack for grain was about her shoulders. Ruth, he called as he ran to her, Ruth! Why are you gleaning in the fields today? She bowed low to the ground and said, My husband, surely I must find something to satisfy the hunger I will have this day. Upon hearing this, Boaz took Ruth in his arms and said, Ruth, do you not understand that since you have become my bride, all that belongs to me belongs to you? Okay, I made that up, (laughs) but in a way that is the rest of the story, isn't it? Boaz is a picture of our kinsman redeemer who has taken us into the family of God so that now everything that belongs to him belongs to you and me. He has given us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away. 1 Peter 1, verse 4. The rest of this story is found in the New Testament description of the final kinsman redeemer. So let me quickly compare briefly the illustration of Boaz with Christ, our redeemer. There are more than four similarities between Boaz and Christ, but I'll just highlight four of them. First, kinship with the bride was required. Now, in other words, in order to meet the condition of the law, the kinsman-redeemer had to be related to the bride, right? So Jesus Christ, in order to redeem us, had to become our relative, which he did. He came and, and took the sandals of humanity to walk among us. John writes, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He satisfied then this condition of the kinsman redeemer. He became a member of the human family so that he could make us members of his family. Secondly, a kinsman's desire to redeem his bride was voluntary he still had to be willing to redeem her boaz could have walked away the other potential redeemer did remember he walked away barefoot having given his sandals as part of the covenant to boaz but boaz didn't walk away why because he loved ruth that's why the Bible says it this way, and this is love. In other words, if you want to talk about love, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, our redeemer, to be the satisfaction for our sins. That is, the son came to redeem us, First John 4.10. And he was willing, in fact, for the joy that was set before him, That joy included winning his bride. He endured the cross, Hebrews 12.2. He became obedient unto death, even, if you can imagine it, death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. That's how willing he was. Boaz was related to Ruth and he was willing to redeem her. So Christ, related by flesh and blood, fully God, yet fully man, God incarnate, come in the flesh, is now related to us and also willing to redeem us, his bride. Thirdly, not only must the Redeemer be related and willing, the kinsman Redeemer had to be capable of paying the redemption price. Listen, no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to buy her land. He had to settle Naomi's estate, it cost. That other near kinsman redeemer might have given Boaz his sandal to seal the covenant, but Boaz gave him silver. According to the law, the redemption price was paid in silver to settle the deal. There was no IOU. There was no let's, let's settle this later and see how it happens. No. Boaz had to have enough money to pay the debts of the widow he wanted and her family's estate. Fortunately then, Boaz was wealthy enough to pay off the debts against the property of Elimelech and settle the estate of Naomi and Ruth. Listen, bride of Christ, you have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Christ, who is infinitely wealthy, can handle any cost. And the purchase price was not money, was it? The legal tender for our redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, in him we have redemption. We have been redeemed by our kinsman redeemer through his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. I found it interesting to discover that according to Jewish custom, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to also buy out of slavery any member of the bride's family who had been forced to sell themselves into slavery to pay off some debt. So a kinsman redeemer literally stepped in and settled any and all debt against his beloved and her family. He, he literally wiped the books clean. So also our Lord hung on the cross and said, it's finished, To Tetelestai, it's paid in full. Literally every debt, all the debt of sin paid for. Every single legal claim against us. Every legality of the law broken. Every debt of sin attached to his beloved's name was completely paid off. The books were wiped clean. Jesus Christ is both willing and he is capable to pay the redemption price in full. Number four, the provision of a kinsman redeemer was comprehensive. It was comprehensive. Boaz lifted Ruth to his high estate. He condescended to marry her and then raised her to his estate. As Jesus Christ condescended to win us and then raises us to his estate as co-regents. She's no longer a Moabite widow. She is the bride, the wife of Boaz. She's made a legal partaker in his name. Her status is now altered from Alien, foreigner, to accepted, because he made provision for all her debts, past, present, and future. He comprehensively wins her to himself. So also Christ Jesus has comprehensively raised our status, hasn't he? From sinner to saint, from stranger to friend, from outcast to child, from lost to redeemed, from a beggar to becoming the bride of Christ. You know, most fairy tales I read to my girls when they were little began with those words, once upon a time, and nearly all of them that I can remember ended with these words, and they lived happily ever after. You know, it occurred to me that those words are an absolutely appropriate ending for every one of us Who are the bride of Christ, every one of us will live happily ever after. That's the rest of the story for all of us. No matter how difficult your biography has been or is, no matter how muddled, no matter how challenged, no matter how painful. At the end of the book that records your life on earth, after you've taken your last breath, your book can close with the words, and he lived happily ever after, and she lived happily ever after. Taken away by your prince, swept away by your bridegroom, kept eternally in the joy of your Lord forever and ever. Now, as I thought about this, the only thing about your life... And mine, and and the fairy tales I read to my girls—that's different—is that after the words and they lived happily ever after, there were always those two final words on the last page: "the the end." Not for you, not for me. There will never be the end after they lived happily ever after. Imagine that. Frankly, we can't. But we believe by faith in our kinsman redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we cling to his promises of grace and mercy and love and purpose, and we know that one day we will enter the glory of heaven forever. Why? Because he was related to us. Because he was willing to redeem us because he was capable of redeeming us, because he was able to comprehensively cover all our debts. So listen, the last words on the biography of the church, the bride of Christ, and every individual member of the bridal party, those who belong to him, are not the words, the end. It just strikes me that the words are, and we lived happily ever after. And for that, Father, we have so much to look forward to. Amazing grace from you, our Redeemer, our faithful, true, condescending bridegroom Father thank you for allowing in the canon of scripture this wonderful wonderful tale this true account of two people three and even more who have now proven over these several thousand years your faithfulness and your purposes which will be fulfilled. And coming from the dark days of the judges is this pearl. Thank you for what it means to us because of you, our Redeemer. You are faithful and true. In your name we thank you. Amen. Amen.